from New York, this is Democracy Now! What might appear to be simply the outcome of a political process and formal changes in institutions is in reality the starting point for a transformation that has begun in each and every one of us. Guatemala inaugurates a new president as Bernardo Arevalo is sworn in almost nine hours late after conservatives try to block the transition of power. We'll go to Guatemala in this epic moment, then to Gaza. The onslaught on Gaza by Israeli forces over these 100 days has unleashed wholesale destruction and levels of civilian killings at a rate that is unprecedented during my years as Secretary General. And the vast majority of those killed are women and children. Nothing can justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. As the UN Secretary General and rallies around the world demand a ceasefire, humanitarian leaders issue a joint call to dramatically increase the flow of aid. And with record low turnout and temperature for an Iowa caucus, Leading Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump trounces his opponents, his opponents, now heads to New York for his second trial determining damages for sexually assaulting writer E. Jean Carroll. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump has won the Iowa caucus with a landslide—about 51 percent of the vote. Trump claimed victory in 98 of Iowa's 99 counties. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis narrowly topped former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley to play second in the first caucus of the 2024 election cycle. New Hampshire will hold the first primary a week from today. After placing fourth in Iowa, Vivek Ramaswamy suspended his campaign and endorsed Trump. Just 14 percent of Iowa's registered Republicans participated in the caucus, in part due to record low temperatures. Trump's victory came despite his mounting legal troubles and his refusal to debate his challengers. During a victory speech, Trump repeated his vow to deport millions of immigrants if he returns to the White House. We're going to drill baby drill right away. Drill baby drill. We're going to seal up the border. Because right now we have an invasion. We have an invasion of millions and millions of people that are coming into our country. That's Donald Trump speaking in Iowa. Today, he'll be back in a New York courtroom for the start of E. Jean Carroll's second defamation trial against him. The first found Trump had sexually assaulted the New York writer in the 90s, then defamed her. In May, a jury awarded Carroll $5 million. At this new trial, a different jury will determine if Trump owes her more money for other acts of defamation. Israel's bombardment and siege in Gaza has entered its 102nd day. Palestinian health officials say Israeli attacks have killed 158 civilians in Gaza over the past 24 hours, bringing the death toll to over 24,000. The dead include more than 10,000 children. On Sunday, President Biden released a statement marking 100 days since the October 7th Hamas attack. In the statement, Biden decried Hamas for continuing to hold more than 100 hostages, but he made no mention of tens of thousands of Palestinians killed, injured 
injured or displaced during Israel's indiscriminate assault. Major rallies calling for a ceasefire in Gaza were held around the world this weekend. In Washington, D.C., organizers said as many as 400,000 people took part in a march Saturday. The rally was held just two days after South Africa brought its historic genocide case against Israel to The Hague. Speakers at Saturday's rally in Washington included independent presidential candidate Cornel West. And I say personally to Biden and company. You're not just enabling, you're not just facilitating, you're not just coagulating and cooperating with vicious crime of genocide. That makes you war criminals yourself. You ought to be shamed. Who do you think we are? You think that you can suppress the love that we have for our Palestinian brothers and sisters? No, you got the wrong people. Tension is continuing to escalate across the Middle East. On Monday, Houthi forces from Yemen fired a missile that hit a U.S.-owned cargo ship in the Gulf of Aden. The attack came after the U.S. and U.K. bombed Houthi sites in Yemen Thursday and again Friday. Houthi officials have vowed to keep attacking ships linked to Israel, they say, as well as U.S. and British ships, until a ceasefire is reached in Gaza. In support of the grievances of the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip, who are subjected to the most heinous types of massacres by the Zionist entity, and in response to the American-British aggression against our country, the naval forces of the Yemeni Houthi armed forces, with the help of Allah Almighty, carried out a military operation targeting a U.S. ship in the Gulf of Aden with a number of appropriate naval missiles, and the hit was accurate and direct. In Iraq, at least four people were killed earlier today when Iran bombed what it described in as Israeli, Israeli spy headquarters near Erbil, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan. Iraq's denied the building struck was tied to the Mossad. Masroor Barzani, the prime minister of the Kurdistan region, described the attack as a, quote, crime against the Kurdish people. Unquote. Iran says it also bombed targets in northern Syria linked to ISIS. The U.S. State Department condemned the Iranian attack near Erbil, describing it as reckless. This comes less than two weeks after the U.S. assassinated the leader of an Iranian-backed militia in Baghdad, which the U.S. claimed was done in self-defense. In Guatemala, Bernardo Arevalo was sworn in as president early Monday morning after opposition lawmakers delayed the transfer of power by nine hours in the latest effort by Guatemala's elite to weaken the anti-corruption crusader now president. Arevalo shocked Guatemala's elite in August by winning the presidential election. Ever since, then Guatemala's attorney general, Consuelo Porras, has led a campaign to block him from taking office. Bernardo Arevalo is the son of former President Juan José Arevalo, Guatemala's first democratically elected leader. Arevalo spoke Monday after he was finally sworn in. Guatemala has, Guatemala has suffered deep wounds that require healing. These scars are not only reflected in indicators or in technocratic exercises that assess the country's reality, they are rooted in the daily experiences of our communities. We'll go to Guatemala after headlines.
Taiwan's ruling Democratic Progressive Party has won its third consecutive presidential victory. Taiwan's vice president, Lai Ching-te, won Saturday's election in a vote closely watched in Beijing and Washington. China vocally opposed his candidacy and has described the president-elect as a, quote, dangerous separatist, unquote. Lai Ching-te spoke on Saturday. We hope that both sides of the Taiwan Strait can return to healthy and orderly exchanges in the future. Indeed, as you have mentioned, President Tsai Ing-wen has continuously extended goodwill over these eight years. Unfortunately, China has not provided an appropriate response. The Taiwanese people have taken action to successfully resist the intervention of external forces. This is because we believe in electing our own president. China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, responded to the vote in Taiwan by issuing a harsh warning to anyone in Taiwan who seeks independence. Taiwan has never been a country, not in the past and certainly not in the future. Taiwanese independence has never been possible. It has not been possible in the past, and it will never be possible in the future. Anyone on the island of Taiwan who wants to pursue Taiwanese independence or split China's territory will be severely punished by history and law. And the longtime black liberation activist Soko Odingo has died at the age of 79. He was a member of Malcolm X's organization of Afro-American Unity, as well as the Black Panther Party in New York City and the Black Liberation Army. After spending years underground, he was convicted in 1984 of charges related in part to his role in helping Asada Shakur escape prison. Odinga served 33 years in state and federal prison before being released. In 2016, Saku Odinga appeared on Democracy Now! and talked about why he initially joined the Black Panthers. What attracted me more than anything else was to stand against police brutality, because, uh, like all the other ghettos in this country or black areas of this country, uh, police brutality was running, was running rampant. That was the attraction, the big attraction to, uh, that for me personally. And many of the, the comrades that I came in with, because they, they really, they, we were not part of the, the civil rights movement to turn, turn the other cheek. We were mostly followers of the, the Malcolm X, uh, 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 position that if someone smack you, you smack them back. If someone punch you, you punch them back. That your life was the the biggest and best thing you had, and you had a right to not only uh, uh, protect it, but to defend it by any means necessary. Black liberation activist Seko Odinga speaking in 2016 on Democracy Now! He's died at the age of 79. Go to democracynow.org to see the full interview. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman in a snowy New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show in Guatemala, where many say hope is blooming again after the long-delayed inauguration of the new president, Bernardo Arevalo. He was sworn in alongside Vice President Karin Herrera a few minutes past midnight Guatemala time on Monday. But that was not the time he was supposed to be sworn in. 
Opposition lawmakers delayed the ceremony by more than nine hours as a last-minute attempt by Guatemala's corrupt elite to block his transition to power. The move sparked more protests, with thousands of people pouring into Guatemala City from every corner of the country Sunday to witness this historic moment. Indigenous leaders held ceremonies and rallies, while Guatemala City's Constitutional Plaza and Historic Center were filled with people celebrating. Arevalo spoke Monday, after he was finally sworn in. What might appear to be simply the outcome of a political process and formal changes in institutions is in reality the starting point for a transformation that has begun in each and every one of us. In this shared horizon, we are united to weave the story of a country that we all aspire to see flourish and prosper. We cannot become accustomed to the daily pain or look away from the mirror to avoid recognizing our painful realities. We cannot limit ourselves to dreaming of the future or clinging to the past. We must take responsibility for the present and the present. Guatemala presents us with tremendous challenges that we cannot ignore. Following his inauguration, Arevalo tweeted, Guatemala is moving forward. In his first remarks as president, he thanked Guatemala's youth, as well as indigenous communities who've led protests outside the Guatemalan attorney general's office. Arevalo's victory shocked Guatemala's right-wing political and business elite, which has controlled much of Guatemala for decades. Since his victory in August, the Guatemalan attorney general, Consuelo Porras unleashed a campaign to prevent him from taking office, also targeting other Samia party members. Samia means seed, with unfounded accusations of fraud and other claims. Bernardo Arevalo is the son of the former president, Juan José Arevalo, Guatemala's first democratically elected leader, who pushed for revolutionary policies when he was in office from 1945 to 1951. Three years later, in 1954, the CIA backed a coup, putting an end to democracy in Guatemala. Supporters see Bernardo Arevalo's presidency as a new spring for Guatemala. For more, we're joined by three guests. We begin in Guatemala City, where we're joined by Andrea Villagran, Guatemalan Congress member with the political party Movimiento Semilla, the seed movement. Welcome to Democracy Now! and congratulations, Congress member. Um, it was a nail-biter right to the end on Sunday. I watched hour after hour. I think uh, Revelo tweeted, hold on, everyone, it really is going to happen. It took almost nine hours. For us, it was after one in the morning, Monday morning. Explain the significance of his victory, of all of your victories, as the attorney general has gone after all of you for so long. Hi, good morning. Thank you very much for the invitation. And here in Guatemala, we are living now moments of hope and a lot of joy knowing that finally um, there is we have a president that represents us and that is fighting for corruption and represents a change of what we have seen in the last decades. It's the change of regime from a corrupt system 
from an authoritarian system to a democratic one. People choose Semilla because people reject all the traditional uh, practices of corruption and the Arevalo administration will focus um, provide to the people what we are expecting and we are what we are asking from a long time ago. We were going to fight against corruption and focus on rescue the democratic institutions. We will try to rescue the public services as health and education, basic services that all Guatemalans need. And Congress member, could you talk about the situation in the Congress? Uh, with conservative lawmakers trying to stop the new president's program. What does do things look like in Congress in terms of Semilla's ability to move legislation forward? Well, what happened in Congress does, is basically that there's a group of corrupt Congress members who still want to maintain their privileges and basically impunity and corruption. They are trying... They even try everything on the 14th of January to delay the Congress session by f- making a lot of illegal actions to, to avoid um, the transition of power. But we won in Congress. We, were, we are 160, and from, from 160, 92 members of Congress uh, defend democracy and we were able to make the transition of power by midnight um, of the 14th. So I think it was uh, a, a session in Congress that was really hard and really intense. But, but at the end, the people won. The willing of the people who choose Bernardo Arevalo and Karen Herrera won. Democracy won. So we were able to make the transition of power by the midnight of the 14th of January. And could you tell us something about Semilla's history, how it developed and came to this point? Yes, uh, the Movimiento Semilla actually born in the protest of 2015 when we were in the middle of a lot of corruption cases that we were showing how the lawmakers, how the politicians' abuses were affecting all our lives in means of health crisis and a lot of um, the, the huge cost of living here. We saw there was a lot of migration because lack of opportunities as well. So Movimiento Semilla started making as a political party with people that wanted to make a change. After two electoral process, the previous electoral process, we were seven in Congress. Um, now we are 23 members uh, in Congress. And since June 25, when was the first round, and Bernardo Arevalo was uh, elected, uh, going into the second round, and then on the 20th August was already, um, Bernardo Arevalo won the electoral process. We are being under attack more than six months, I will say, since June, um, we have received a lot of attacks trying to block him uh, from taking the office. And we are being defended by people. We have everything against us. We have uh, the 
the justice system against us, the Congress against us, the um, the former president by that time, Alejandro Yamate, was uh, also attacking us. And we were, who defend us basically was the people who went to the streets to wait to, the, to make protest, ex- just exclaiming, and defending their boat, they're wheeling in the in the pools. There was a lot of indigenous leaders who defend Movimiento Semilla, not because we were a political party that maybe represent their their interests or they ideologically. It was more because they defend democracy, and what all these attacks in the last five months that we have received, what they have done is make a huge unity of the people, the youth, the indigenous leaders, all sectors, private sectors, I will say as well, that want a new chapter in Guatemala's political life to move forward for a democratic system. So people get united and defend democracy. And that's why we were able to get to this point. And that's how we were able to get transfer the power on January 14, because we have been under a lot of obstacles, but we have been able to move forward because we have the support of the people who choose us. Andrea Viragan, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Guatemalan Congress member and a member of the SEED movement, Movimiento Semilla. We are now going to stay in Guatemala City with Frank LaRue, Guatemalan human rights activist and lawyer. And we're joined by Lucia Ischu, who is an exiled Quiche indigenous leader speaking to us from Bilbao, Spain. Lucia, we'd like to begin with you. Um, part of Arevalo's victory, in part, it is due to the incredible mobilization of indigenous Guatemalans. If you can talk about that mobilization, you were one of the student leaders in 2015 who helped lead to the seed movement, right, to Samia and to what we're witnessing today in Guatemala. Hello, everyone. Well, for me, see my indigenous authorities, 48 cantons or 48 cantones, it's an honor. I I never imagined uh, the idea to see our indigenous authorities taking the Guatemala City and recover the power. Because I think, uh, for me, it's not exactly to the party elections. It's not exactly about what are happening in this moment in Guatemala. We are, we are facing against colonialism, 531 years fighting against slavery because Guatemala is one of the most poverty countries all around the world. And the reality and the conditions until today is slavery. So the people are doing a a free process for me is a very radical moment. I never imagined that. I never, I never imagined the, the indigenous people uh, taking the Guatemalan city because, of course, we always do the demonstrations in our highlights. We always defend the motherland. We always defend the territory. We always fight. We have more than 550 years fighting against colony extractivism. But right now, we know that we have to uh, to change the reality because Guatemala is a dictatorship from the extremely right 17 years ago. This is not new. 
We only have the possibility to vote for extremely uh, 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 rights parties. So right now, that's why the people want to change this reality. And for us, it's inspiration. I feel honored to be part of the Quiche people from the 48 Cantones de Totonicapan, who is one of the leaders who the, the Guatemalan country have to be grateful for the indigenous authorities from all around the, the, the country because of that action, because of that strike, that demonstration, we have a country right now and we can recover a small part of the democracy in right now. And Lucia, uh, you are now in Spain. You received political asylum there after fleeing from Guatemala. Could you talk a little bit about your own experience and uh, the, th the, the threats and the, the problems that you and your sister uh, survived when you were in Guatemala? Well, we lived three attempts to murder in Guatemala. I have a two open cases for criminalization, for being an indigenous woman leader in Guatemala to want to change the reality. And my sister, too. Uh, my sister uh, lived an attempt, too. So all the time in Guatemala, the situation for the indigenous journalists, activists as us, uh, increase and in the dictatorship and in the pandemic of the COVID-19, it was really horrible for the human rights defenders and the land defenders in Guatemala. The murders increase, the situation, uh, it was really awful. And that's the reason why we don't have nothing. We don't have conditions to be a, a Jewish case. We don't have conditions because it's a dictatorship, the persecutor, persecutor office in Guatemala is part of the dictatorship. Guatemala, I say all the time, is a Jewish uh, dictatorship right now. And one for me, the most of the challenges of the Bernardo Arevalo's government right now is to change the Consuelo Porras, uh, mayor of the persecute officer, because we know that she is responsible of the exile of a lot of indigenous leaders, of a lot of Jewish, of a lot of uh, um, people who was part of the office of the persecution, uh, and a lot of judges too. So they are responsible. Alejandro Yamatei, Jimmy Morales, who is the, uh, the other president of the of the last government are responsible. And right now we can see a possibility to return to the country, but we need conditions, you know, because right now we are not sure if we can return to our country. I want to go to that issue with Frank LaRue of the kind of conditions that are necessary. And if the struggle, this inauguration of a new president, means the end of the fight against what are known as the pactos de corruptos, the corrupt pact of the military and governing and corporate elite um, in Guatemala. Frank, you are a longtime activist, lawyer, have seen what happened and know the history of 1954 when the U.S. helped overthrow the Guatemalan president for United Fruit, the Dulles brothers, right? Uh, John Foster Dulles, secretary of state at the time, had represented United Fruit. He was his corporate lawyer. But what that meant for the hundreds of thousands of Guatemalans who were murdered over the years and how that played out right through to Sunday, hour after hour, waiting for this inauguration with the last-minute skirmishes led by 
the Congress members and the the conservative Congress members and the attorney general. Do you feel that uh, Bernardo Arevalo is safe as president? Well, thank you for the invitation, Amy. And and the answer is yes. I I think, as uh, my two predecessors said, I think the transition is real. Uh, And I was very glad to see that you mentioned there's two precedents to this. One historical precedent is that Arevalo's father was part of what was considered the first spring, which was then toppled by the 54 coup. But it's also important to mention that during all these years, we had dictatorships and military regimes, and we went through a period of genocide. So there's over 200,000 victims in Guatemala that lost their lives for the peace process. And today, 27 years later after the peace process, we're beginning to see the change in Guatemala. And I think this time the change is real. One of the issues to highlight, I mean, there's two, I think, uh, Bernardo Arevalo is absolutely trustworthy. Everyone uh, voted for him, not necessarily knowing him personally, but trusted his honesty and trusted Semilla, the party. I agree with Congresswoman Villagran that that it, it was the enthusiasm of breaking with the past of corruption. But I also think that the other element to highlight, and, and, and Lucia Ishu mentioned it very clearly, it was this was the opportunity for the indigenous leadership and the ancestral leadership, which they call, to bring out their strength, to show the world and the ruling elites in Guatemala that have dominated with force and abuse, that this is a time of change. Guatemala is a country with serious cases of exclusion and, and, and differences, economic differences. There's a huge gap in life between indigenous and non-indigenous communities. And this is the time for change. And I think uh, the change is irreversible. I, I honestly believe that uh, Bernardo Arevalo and Karin Herrera will be able to initiate the change. I, I think change will take a lot of work. Uh, they're inheriting a house in shambles and a country in shambles with, with uh, huge social problems, inequalities, and, and uh, torn down state that does not guarantee nor safety, nor health, nor education, nor all basic services. So the challenge is enormous. But I think they're up to this challenge. But very importantly, and probably the most important factor, is the level of consciousness of the people of Guatemala. And I think the people voted, the young people in the cities, but especially the mobilizations that Lucia was mentioning of the indigenous peoples. This was a sign of strength. And I think against this, those that have ruled the country in the past know that they cannot defeat them. That this is a time, as indigenous people said, we're not struggling for one election, we're not struggling for one, for one uh, uh, victory, we're struggling to save democracy and to the, have them respect our vote. Now, obviously, those that are against Bernardo and the transition to democracy went to the very last day, as we all know now, was that long session of nine hours in Congress, went to the very last day trying to stop the transition, but were not able to do it. So I think this is a moment of, of real hope in Guatemala. But it's a hope because of the transition. It's a hope because for the first time we have an honest and good government. But it's also a hope because the people mobilized. And this is a victory of the people of Guatemala, especially the indigenous people. 
And Frank, we don't have much time, but I just wanted to ask you in terms of what you would expect from the United States government. Uh, previous U.S. governments have always backed uh, the uh, the corrupt uh, elite of Guatemala in maintaining power. What is your hope now with this new administration that you would expect from uh, the Biden administration and from Washington? Well, we would hope full support. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the U.S. and the international community, uh, the OAS included, which has, doesn't necessarily have that good a record in the past either, or the European Union, everyone supported the transition. I think it, it came to the point where everyone recognized that Guatemala was about to collapse, to implode, if it kept on going in that direction, and that the only way to rescue it was to rescue democracy. And, and I think everyone has put their support behind uh, Bernardo Arevalo, Karin Herrera, and, and the Semilla party in, in government. Um, and I think this is important. Now, I think this support has to continue. One of the things that Bernardo said in his speech is, we thank the international community, but please don't forget us. Coming to power is only but the first step. And in reality, he said a very initial step of what has to be a long process Please continue with us for the long term. Now, obviously, we're linked to, to the different policies. This administration in Washington has made the right statements, had taken the right position. But we do remember with the past administration, with the Trump administration, that it was the moment when CC, a good experiment on justice, was attacked by the elites. And the Trump administration turned their face away and let it collapse. This is very tragic. So it's very very crucial to understand that policies uh, from from Washington have an indirect uh, effect in how much the elite over there thinks they can get away with. Finally, Lucia Ischu, uh, in Spain, though you'd like to be in Guatemala, though safe in Guatemala, um, we have less than a minute, but your final demands as this transition is made to the new Arevalo administration— well, right now, uh, we are organized as migrant and exiled people in Europe, and we are in contact with networks for migrants in U.S. too. So we have our own demands. We exist, and we are vital for the country, even if the country, even if the state forced to leave the country uh, because of a lot of reasons. We have our demands and we want to speak to the government of Bernardo and we want to, and Karin, and we want to be here. We want to spoke and we want to let them know what we want. And we want rights and we want to recognize us as persons, even as migrant communities and exiled people outside the country, because we are vital. We create an, a big um, intensity activity and campaign for in uh, advocacy international in Europe and in U.S. And our work was vital for the democracy now in the country, too. I want to thank you both for being with us. Lucia Ischu is exiled Quiche indigenous leader now in Bilbao, Spain, and Frank LaRue, Guatemalan human rights activist and lawyer, uh, speaking to us from Guatemala City. We'd like to ask both of you to stay after the show so we can conduct our interview in Spanish and put it online at Democracy Now! and Espanol. Next up, we get an update on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza as the U.N. Secretary General and rallies worldwide demand a ceasefire. Back in 20 seconds. <laughs>
los suelos y los cielos, poco más danza agua y fuego, danza el árbol con el viento. Espiral de tiempo, de la raíz de la tierra crecen los versos que entintan esperanza. La abuela Ishmucanete geme melodías al alma, sin color ni distinción, los pueblos bailan y cantan. Somos viento, somos sol y sueños multicolores, somos este norte oscuro este. Somos historia, viento y canción, escribimos el tiempo junto a voces. Sara Kurechich. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Major rallies calling for a ceasefire in Gaza were held worldwide this weekend, marking 100 days of the Israeli assault on Gaza. Those rallies included one in Washington, D.C., where organizers say 400,000 people protested U.S. complicity in what they called one of the deadliest and most destructive military assaults in recent history. Palestinian health officials say Israeli attacks have killed 158 civilians in Gaza over the last 24 hours alone, bringing the death toll since October 7th to 24,000, though this is likely an undercount. The majority of those killed, women and children, it's believed more than 10,000 children have died. On Sunday, President Biden put a statement marking 100 days since the October 7th Hamas attack and condemned Hamas for continuing to hold more than 100 hostages. But he made no mention of the tens of thousands of Palestinians killed, injured or displaced during Israel's bombardment. On Monday, United Nations humanitarian leaders issued a joint demand for dramatically increasing the flow of aid into Gaza. This is the World Food Program's Palestine Country Director, Samar Abdeljaber. Everyone in Gaza is hungry. We're exploring all possible solutions, but none are sufficient in the face of obstacles. There are people starving in areas, and we are not able to give basic food for. The needs are rising faster than we are able to respond. We need to be able to bring in more supplies, and we need safe access to reach people everywhere in Gaza, not just those who are close to the borders. We need a long-lasting ceasefire to stop the suffering. For more, we're joined by Dr. Omar Abdelmanan, pediatric neurologist, co-founder of Gaza Medic Voices and Health Workers for Palestine, in constant touch with his colleagues in Gaza, joining us from London. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. Um, the assault this weekend, um, especially uh, uh, in the central and south part in Khan Yunus, um, is intense, with well over 100 Palestinians killed just in the last 24 hours. Can you talk about the desperation of people there and what you think could lead to a ceasefire, as millions around the world demanded one this weekend? Thank you so much for having me on the program. So the situation is spiraling out of con control. Many of our colleagues, British doctors, who have just come out of Gaza in the last few days, uh, led by medical aid Palestinians, have come out and said the scenes inside the hospitals are apocalyptic, to say the least. 
They described scenes inside Al-Aqsa Hospital, which is no longer functioning and has been completely uh, taken over and besieged by the Israeli occupation forces. They described scenes of 500 admissions in a night, many of whom were serious casualties from air raids, the majority of whom were children, children with double uh, above-the-knee amputations of the lower limbs, children with burns down to the bone that are so horrific that they are disfigured for life, and also women and men also being killed and targeted. What we are seeing is a systematic targeting of healthcare facilities. Healthcare workers, 370 at least at the last count of whom have been killed, being either killed, maimed, abducted, or even more so tortured when they've been held captive. As Dr. Hassan Abusetta mentioned on the rally in London on Saturday, these are the reports coming outside from there. What we are seeing is not a war on children. This is a genocidal, uncontrollable massacre of Palestinians at large and in mass. The Israeli occupation forces and the Israeli government has made it very clear that they are now in a situation where they want to either exterminate Palestinians or force them and displace them out of their ancestral home after 75 years of occupation. And what would lead to a ceasefire? Well, the simple answer is the American government. President Biden, when he comes out and says on uh, a national address, 100 days of the 7th of October, he feels for the hostages and the families, we all feel terrible about the situation on the 7th of October. But to completely nullify and ignore the tens of thousands, at least 24,000 Gazans who have been killed in cold blood by an Israeli war machine is frankly outrageous. Frankly, the US government and the UK government and other Western leaders are complicit in this because they are arming the same Israeli bombs that are raining hellfire on uh, Palestinian hospitals, Palestinian schools, Palestinian bakeries and water sanitation plants. Make no mistake, this is an attempt to completely wipe out an infrastructure and a public health system for people in Gaza. But doctor, I wanted to ask you, there have been about an estimated 15,000 children born in Gaza since the assault began. Could you talk about the uh, the impact on uh, pregnant women with the collapse of all of these medical facilities? So we had an obstetrician that was with this WHO team that just came out of Al-Aqsa. What she described to us and speaking to colleagues on the ground is women Uh, giving birth in the shelters, in the rubble, in the streets, with no maternal maternity care for women who are pregnant in the north and central regions of Gaza. That is at least a million people with no access to maternity care. That means women having to go through high-risk pregnancies, having to go through deliveries with no hospital or pre-hospital care, no midwives, no doctors to help. What that has led to is many, many women dying in childbirth or after, from the normal complications that often happen after a high-risk pregnancy. That includes hemorrhage, where they would not be able to have a blood transfusion because of the lack of supplies. That includes women fitting, having seizures, and no medication being given to them to stop these seizures. This is medieval-style medicine that we are seeing, and this is 100% man-made. Again, this could stop right now if there was a permanent and lasting ceasefire. And unfortunately, as I said... The UK, the US, has continued to warmonger and to actually allow Israel to continue 
in this genocidal tactics. And the global south has started to mobilize. And there has been a, a great awakening for people who were before not aware of the situation in Palestine. But 70 years of occupation now fast forwarded and sped up at double speed with this genocidal attacks has led to people protesting in the hundreds of thousands across London, Washington, D.C. and other major cities. And as healthcare workers, myself included, speaking on, on behalf of health workers for Palestine and Gaza Medic Voices, we do not accept this. We will not remain silent. We have escalated and will continue to do so. And as a concerned citizen of the world, what we are seeing is a lack of humanity, a lack of response from our leaders who are impotent, frankly. And now it is the duty of citizens like us to stand up, to protest, to approach our members of parliament, to put pressure on our governments to act. And if that doesn't happen, then the next step, which should be happening now, is to boycott, to boycott any Israeli product that is funding a state that is destroying people and killing human beings in their homes, to apply pressure for academic sanctions, for cultural boycott, academic boycott and sanctions on the Israeli state. And this is the next step. And this is what I'm calling for as a consensus and to my fellow colleagues, health workers and general citizen professionals and non-professionals across the world to start standing up and start speaking up because we have had enough. We are sick and tired of seeing our own colleagues being killed and maimed in mass. Could uh, Doctor, could you talk about your work trying to bring children to the UK for medical care from Gaza and the obstacles you faced? So this is uh, work that is being done by colleagues of ours. There are numerous projects that are attempting to bring children to European cities, to European hospitals, to provide care similar to what the PCRF, the Palestinian Child Relief Society, has been doing so well uh, to the United States previous to the 7th of October. We are in discussions with uh, the relevant bodies to try and make this happen. Many of these children are children who have had complex injuries um, as a result of direct bombardment and bombing, uh, who need years of reconstructive plastic surgical work. And these will be specific cases that we will try to help where the need is not met in Egypt and Jordan or in neighboring countries. But this is, uh, you know, under... Uh, this is happening, but uh, watch this space, essentially. Uh, finally, Dr. Omar Abdelmanan, you have Israel talking about this going on for more than a year. They are saying that Hamas has to release the hostages. Meanwhile, Hamas released a hostage video where one of the hostages is shown saying that two other hostages were killed in an Israeli strike. You have the mass protest of hostage families that took place over the weekend demanding um, that uh, it be the first priority to release the hostages. What is your response to the Israeli government, to Netanyahu um, uh, and to the others in the war cabinet, uh, saying, first, Hamas has to release all the hostages? We've seen this narrative time and time again. Every uh, interlude in this continued bombardment, we have seen the excuse of hostages, the excuses of human shields, the excuses of Hamas tunnels under hospitals, and many of these have been debunked by mainstream media. Well, the Washington Post, BBC News found that many of these tunnels underneath the hospitals were in fact, you know, previously used for uh, as ventilation shafts. They're not even Hamas tunnels. So this idea of the hostages being released, as you correctly said, we are seeing the Israelis shooting at their own people. 
they shot two, two or three hostages waving white flags who were Israeli hostages running and fleeing from their captives. And they were shot dead at point blank range. So frankly, uh, to me and to all of us who have seen the demasking of the Israeli government's intentions, these are just purely excuses. And unfortunately, the mainstream media, many of whom are in the UK and the US, are complicit in this. They are allowing these narratives. When I go on every TV show and I get asked the first question, do you condemn Hamas or do you know about the tunnels underneath the hospitals? This is pushing that narrative forward. And frankly, you know, investigations so far, you know, in what, in what remains uh, of Gaza has shown that these many of these stories, a majority of whom are not true, simply not true. So that would be my response. And again, I am not and we are not um, you know, going to be taken for a ride by the Israeli government's narrative. We know exactly what is happening here. And the West and the UK and the US and other governments, as I said, are complicit in continuing this narrative. And until there is a permanent ceasefire, until there is proper humanitarian aid entering through aid corridors, until there is the end of the occupation of Gaza and the West Bank and the continuing atrocities happening in the West Bank with settler, settlers attacking Palestinians, then we will not stop and we will continue and we will mobilize in the hundreds of thousands, in the millions against this genocide. Dr. Omar Abdelmanan, we want to thank you for being with us. Pediatric neurologist and co-founder of Gaza Medic Voices and Health Workers for Palestine, speaking to us from London. Next up, record low turnout and temperatures for an Iowa caucus. Donald Trump trounces his, his opponents and heads to New York to deal with yet another trial um, for— um, the sexual assault of E. Jean Carroll, the New York writer. Stay with us. Heavens by Basil Zayed. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show with the first caucus of the 2024 election cycle. Donald Trump has trounced his opponents in the Iowa caucus, winning by a landslide record 51 percent of the record low vote. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis narrowly topped former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, 21 percent to 19 percent. Vivek Ramaswamy suspended his campaign, endorsed Trump. Trump's victory came despite his mounting legal troubles and the fact that he's refused to debate his challengers. He's coming from Iowa to New York to the Manhattan federal court today 
for the second trial determining damages for sexually assaulting writer E. Jean Carroll uh, before he joins other candidates in New Hampshire. For more, we go to Wisconsin, to John Nichols, the nation's national affairs correspondent. He's been covering the Iowa caucus. What stood out for you most? A lot of records here. Record trouncing, 51 to 30 percent um, higher than the next candidate, right, uh, DeSantis. Um, freezing cold weather. And now he's in court in New York. It's, it's quite a, a stack of records there, Amy. Thanks for having me. Um, look, what stood out for me as I walked the streets of Dubuque yesterday was uh, that it was unbelievably cold. And I know cold pretty well as an upper Midwesterner. Uh, but they were talking in some parts of Iowa about a 30 to 40 below zero wind chill last night when the caucuses began. And I, I don't doubt that that may have depressed turnout to some extent. But I have to tell you, uh, I did not see the sort of enthusiasm that I've seen in the past. And I've covered Iowa caucuses for decades. And so in many ways, it seemed as if the Republicans were kind of going through the motions. They were, they were you know, putting a period on the end of the sentence. Yes, they endorsed Donald Trump. Yes, some of the more urban and suburban areas uh, leaned more toward Nikki Haley, especially who was rising, and to some extent to Ron DeSantis. Uh, but what stood out most for me was in some of the entrance polling. They do polls as people go into the caucuses. Uh, that, for a variety of reasons, is the best way to survey rather than traditional exit polling. And in that entrance polling, 32% of the people who attended the caucuses said that they believe that if Donald Trump was convicted of one of the 91 counts he faces in trials all over the country this year, um, if he is convicted, they would see him as unfit for office. That's a striking figure, Amy. It doesn't, uh, it, it's higher than, than what we've seen in some polls. And in a state where you're talking about very conservative people coming to the caucuses, obviously they're engaged Republicans or Republican leaners, to have that high a level I would suggest to you that when you combine that with some other national polls that point to similar similar concerns, that these trials of Trump may well turn out to be far more significant than a lot of political pundits assume. I think most of the pundits assume that Republicans are going to line up by, behind Trump no matter what, that, you know, whatever convictions he faces, whatever happens, they're unconcerned. This entrance polling uh, suggests a very different reality. And if we continue to see this pattern going forward, I think, frankly, it's it's a compelling number uh, or compelling set of numbers as you look toward November. It may well be that Donald Trump has more of a problem with Republicans than people thought. Well, uh, John, the uh, the presidential primary now the primaries now shift to New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. What's your expectation in terms of any chances of some of these uh, contenders against uh, Trump to make any headway? It all comes down to New Hampshire, and there's there's simply no question of that one. Uh, New Hampshire is the place where Nikki Haley has put all of her energy. I mean, she did go into Iowa, and she's got a lot of money behind her. She's got Koch brothers' money, and, and you know, kind of a lot of the, the wealthy donor types tend to be very supportive of her, and not, not giving money directly to her, but doing independent expenditures. Um, so she had a campaign in Iowa, but her focus has been primarily in New Hampshire. She's been going into very small towns in that state, uh, really building out a, a, a serious campaign. Some recent polling has showed her 
on closing in on Trump. With Chris Christie getting out of the race, a lot of his votes are likely to go to Haley. It's clear from Iowa that Haley does have an appeal in some of the more urban and suburban areas. You've got a lot more suburban areas in New Hampshire. And so that's where it's all at. If Haley beats Trump in New Hampshire, then you've got an ongoing race. I don't think that means that Trump won't be the nominee. I think he's got tremendous number of advantages in all sorts of states going forward. But uh, New Hampshire will decide whether this is going to be any kind of realistic contest for that Republican nomination. And if Haley does win New Hampshire, then you do go to South Carolina, her home state. That'll be a big test for her. And, you know, we'll have more to talk about. On the other hand, if Trump does as well or anywhere near as well in New Hampshire as he did in Iowa, uh, this race is going to fade away pretty quickly. And, and meanwhile, President Biden has been raising lots of money in the last quarter of 2023. His campaign raised over ninety seven million dollars. He's begun now to uh, to get on the stump uh, somewhat. Uh, talk about what you see as uh, Biden's chances, especially given his enormous involvement and support of the uh, wars in Ukraine and uh, in the Middle East and in Gaza. I'm sorry, the Israeli attacks on Gaza. Yes. Look, Biden's got a lot of problems. Uh, you know, we're pointing to this exit or entrance poll data out of Iowa that suggests that Trump has problems with his own party. But the fact is that Biden's approval ratings are exceptionally low and his polls against Trump put him, you know, at best even, sometimes behind, sometimes a little bit ahead. So he's got a hard, hard race ahead of him. And I don't think there's any question. I look at all the polling and I, I spent a lot of time talking to people. I recently interviewed Rashida Tlaib about, you know, what's happening in Michigan. Uh, look, there is simply no question. Joe Biden is harmed politically, I think, in a number of states by his ongoing support for the Israeli assault on Gaza. And uh, you look at Michigan as an example. The polls recently out of Michigan have been very, very troubling for Biden. I hear that, you know, in coming days, he's going to try and make some efforts to reach out to Arab Americans, to reach out to uh, communities that have been deeply concerned about this. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think rhetoric's going to help there. I think there, that only a change in policy is likely to begin to close some of the gap. So Biden's got a hard race ahead of him. Uh, what I would sum it up as, though, is, look, the level of people who in Iowa said that they would see a convicted Trump as unfit is uh, an encouraging sign for Biden. Uh, the reality is that we're likely to have a very, very close November election. And when you get down to it, uh, on both sides, it's going to be a, a, an issue of mobilization. And I think Trump will have perhaps some trouble mobilizing the whole of his Republican and conservative base. But Biden also will have trouble in that regard. And so we've got a, a long, complicated and, frankly, pretty frustrating race ahead of us. And we're going to have to leave it there. And Nikki Haley is pouring money into new ads where she refers to the uh, Trump-Biden nightmare. John yeah. Nichols, the nation's national affairs correspondent, speaking to us from Wisconsin, just back from Iowa. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Democracy Now!